0: Hi, I'm Ben. Uh, I normally go to the 6pm service. Our Bible reading for today comes from John chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 13 through to verse 26, which is a section from uh, when Jesus is talking to the woman of Samaria at the well. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man who you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said i know that messiah is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us then jesus declared i the one who am speaking to you i am he
1: hi everyone it's my privilege to be able to share with us from god's word on this mother's day Uh, It's a very familiar passage we're looking at, John chapter 4, looking at a married woman. Did she have kids? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, Uh, but clearly Jesus loved her uh, and met her in her place of need. Uh, Its familiarity uh, doesn't mean that we can just understand this by ourselves. And so as always, we recognize our dependence upon God, not only in order to understand this, but to respond to it rightly. And so I invite you to join with me uh, in asking God towards that means. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to have your word, a language we can understand. Uh, It's addressed to us and you desire us to uh, read it, to understand it and respond to it. We recognize that we can't do this by ourselves. And so we do uh, acknowledge our dependence upon you. We ask that by your spirit, you would work in us so that we would not only understand it, but actually respond to it rightly, that we would live this out to your glory. May we be those living sacrifices uh, offered to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you found, as I did, last week's message helpfully clarified what worship is. It is part of human nature to worship, exalting, praising, Recognising someone or something is great is something that we all automatically do. But though worship is instinctive or intuitive, it is not always directed where or to whom it should be. In the words that were used last week are all of the 168 hours of our week used in worshipping God. God declares in His Word that he will be exalted, the basis of our series title, the, the claim of Psalm 46, verse 10, for just one recent example we have looked at together. I will be exalted. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13 gives us a preview of the fulfillment of that prophecy. There, and in many places, the Bible claims that the end is certain. People from all nations will spend eternity worshipping God. But now, in that time between the prophecy and its fulfillment, do we get sidetracked or even defiantly choose to worship something or someone other than God? As we reflected on what worship is, we were reminded that it is not restricted to something that we do for an hour on a Sunday. It's not limited to one segment of what we do when we gather or a particular style of music. True worship is a whole of life response to God's mercy. And so if worship is offered through every part of our lives, if it is taking place at all times, then a further implication is that worship is happening in every location, at home, at work, on the roads, even as we sleep. But I think that goes against the assumption and experience of many. For many people, worship is associated with, even limited to, certain locations. We see it in how certain buildings are spoken of, temples, mosques, synagogues, even churches are commonly called places of worship. Some Christians talk about going on a tour of the Holy Land or entering the sanctuary distinct places where God is believed to be somehow specially present, where he can be worshipped. And this distinction does have a basis in the Bible. If we reflect on the Old Testament, there are altars built to God in certain places where he appears. On Mount Sinai, God himself tells Moses that the place on which he is standing is holy ground. God gave explicit instructions that restricted entrance to the holy place and and placed even stricter limits on the holy of holies. Even Jesus' disciples on visiting the temple couldn't help but be impressed by the building. Now, you may or may not think in those terms, but perhaps you do have a special place that you like to go, to pray, to sing, to meditate, up on a mountain, down by the beach, looking up at the stars. It could be simply that a particular location reduces the distractions of everyday life or perhaps what can be seen there in that place triggers reflection on how amazing God is. Whatever the reason, location has and often is linked to worship. And it seems that in our passage today, Jesus and the woman are discussing a where question. Where can I worship? Where is the special place that I can go to get in touch with God? And we're going to use this as our initial question, where can we worship? This well-known event we're going to consider takes place at the well, given centuries earlier by Jacob to Joseph, making it a historically significant place. But even more importantly, it was an ongoing symbol that right on this spot, in this location, God had provided for the needs of his people. Their conversation by the well begins with a simple request from Jesus to the woman, Will you give me a drink? Surprised by Jesus' breaking of the societal norms of the time, the woman openly questions the appropriateness of Jesus' request. And Jesus uses her response to make a bold claim about himself. You should be asking me for water and I'd give you better water than the water from this well. The unnamed Samaritan woman points out the practical problem that Jesus has nothing with which to draw water. But she also grasps Jesus' slightly more subtle hint. She questions the bold implication that, that Jesus could provide something better than their great ancestor Jacob had. Welcoming her question, Jesus confirms that yes, he can provide something better. Water from Jacob's well gave temporary relief from thirst. The living water that Jesus could provide would quench thirst permanently. Like the magic pudding's promise that you can have your cake and eat it, Jesus offers the seemingly impossible, a spring of water welling up from within to eternal life. And the Samaritan woman jumps at his offer. Verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And with that, Jesus springs his loving trap. Verse 16, go, call your husband and come back. I, I, I have no husband, she replies. But what was she thinking in that moment just before? And even as she responded to Jesus, what had started as an unexpected but relatively safe conversation about what this Jewish man needed has very quickly become intensely personal and focused instead on her need. Jesus affirms her answer, but then goes on to show that he has unhindered knowledge of her past. Now, whether or not that is something that would have caused her shame, what part, if any, she had played in the breakdown in relationships is not John's point. And it won't be ours either in focus is that these two had never met before so how could jesus possibly know both this woman's past and her present needs he must be a prophet a spokesperson for god she concludes and so she is either genuinely asking this prophet for the answer to an age-old question or else She tries to protect herself by shifting the focus to a less personal debate, a complex religious argument that had led to centuries of distrust and tension between the northern and southern tribes of Israel. And yet what had been argued for centuries could be summed up in our simple question, where can I worship? Which side had got it right? Were the Samaritans right? Was it God-honouring? to continue worshipping God on Mount Gerizim as their ancestors had done since way back in Joshua chapter 8? Was that the biblical precedent that confirmed that Samaria was a sacred site, an appropriate place to worship the one true God? Or were the Jews right? Was Samaria an idolatrous site, a a wicked alternative to the one place of worship, as 1 Kings chapter 15 claims? Does God live in Jerusalem? Must all worship be done there at the temple? And Jesus responds that both answers are wrong because they've missed the main point. The most important thing is not where worship can take place. The real question is how can anyone Worship God as he desires. Not where, but how. As we concluded last week, we all automatically worship. It flows from us as surely as we breathe. We are all worshipping 24-7, 168 hours a week in every place. But that doesn't guarantee that we will worship in a way that is acceptable to God. The question we must all face is how do we ensure that any of our 168 hours a week are used to worship the one worthy of all our praise? How do we guarantee that we don't slip in a bit of self-worship or worship of idols alongside of our worship of God? Which raises the two better questions that we're going to seek to answer in the remainder of our time. Question two, what is central to acceptable worship? And then thirdly, what enables acceptable worship? So staying in order, question two, what is central to acceptable worship? In verse 22, Jesus agrees that the Jews had a point correct, that their Samaritan cousins had got wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. Verse 21 makes it clear that this didn't mean that the Jews were right about the importance of the temple. And yet, salvation would come from the Jews. You can't seek it in any other place. It wouldn't be found in Samaria, though scripture verses could and had been used to make that claim. The nations that lived around the Jews and Samaritans were worshippers too. And yet their worship was unacceptable to God because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus connects salvation and worship. What salvation, being from the Jews, means is that Jesus, a Jew from Nazareth, is the focal point of all acceptable worship because he will be the one who single-handedly achieves the salvation that leads to right worship. Now again, as we saw last week, true worship is most often a response to God's mercy, a reaction to what God has done. And Jesus' death and resurrection will achieve what all previous and all subsequent saving acts point to. But such an exclusive claim ruffled nationalistic pride then. The claim continues to infuriate our society now. And yet Jesus' claim both here and repeated in multiple places is that acceptable worship is offered through him alone. As Acts chapter 4, verse 12 puts it, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If our worship is not unashamedly Jesus centered, then alarm bells must be ringing. And so the religious sects that claim to have a better grasp of the truth and yet have a low view of Jesus are false. Any religion that considers Jesus to be just another prophet, anyone who says that Jesus was merely a good man shows their terribly inadequate understanding of Jesus. Worship exalts Jesus or it is false worship. It will praise Jesus, lift him up, honour the salvation that he won, or it is an affront to God. And so the debate that God is like a mountain and there are many paths to the top contradicts Jesus' claim. Anyone who argues that it's only the sincerity of the worshippers that matters is mistaken. Either Jesus is central or it is stealing worship from the one who deserves all worship. Acceptable worship, in the words of Romans 12, is true and proper because Jesus is given his rightful place. And so while it is a good question to ask, do our Sunday gatherings, whether online or in person, focus on Jesus in the songs that we sing, in our prayers, through the message, we can't stop there as 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we have to push further to also ask, what does Jesus' glorifying eating and drinking look like? In the original Corinthian setting, it was about making sure that no praise was mistakenly perceived to be given to an idol as Christians ate meat. In our setting, It may ask, does the amount that we eat honour God or do we consume too much sugar and fat or even caffeine to the detriment of our health and show disrespect to the body that God has given us to worship him? But the whatever you do of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 means that absolutely every area of our life can potentially glorify God, which means that we also have to ask, what does Jesus-centred interaction with friends look like? What about Jesus-centred driving? Jesus-centred relaxation, TV watching and internet usage? Jesus-centred study, child raising or career advancement? There is no one-size-fits-all application of what your life of worship will look like. Some, on reflection, will recognise their need to work harder to the glory of God. Using the gifts and opportunities that He has provided them. Some should cut back on their hours to the glory of God. We all differ in the mistakes that we make and the things that God asks of us. But true worship refuses to allow us to separate our life into sacred and secular. Many Christians think, or at least act, as if so long as I do my quiet time, go to church and home group, and put some money in the bag on Sunday then the remainder of my life is mine to do with as I want. Worship is treated almost like a tax paid to God that frees me to use the rest of my life on myself. And whenever we fall into that trap, we miss an opportunity to worship God. The Samaritan woman knew that the Messiah was coming and would cut through all the questions and uncertainty. And as recorded in verse 26, Jesus claims that is exactly who he is, the saviour of the world. The Samaritan woman originally asked, where can I worship? The right question is what is central to acceptable worship? The answer is Jesus. Now, thankfully, this doesn't mean that it's now up to us to ensure that Jesus remains at the centre of all of our thoughts at all times. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus answers our third and final question, what enables acceptable or true worship? His answer? Worship must be done in the Spirit and in truth. In the previous chapter, Jesus insisted that only those born again, born of water and the Spirit, can enter the kingdom of God. It alluded to a statement found a number of times in the book of Ezekiel that prophesied the solution to Israel's inability to worship God as he desires. Israel at times had worshipped God as he had instructed them to, but inevitably their true worship became mixed together with half-hearted and misdirected worship. Something would have to change if even God's people were to worship him exclusively. And that change won't come about by willpower or self-determination. Israel needed something from outside of themselves. In fact, they needed someone. Unlike in Old Testament times when God's Spirit was given to specific people at specific times, Ezekiel prophesied that a time was coming when all God's people would be permanently indwelt by the Spirit. This gift would enable something which had previously been impossible. God himself would dwell in his people rather than just with his people, rather than external rules to follow, now there would be an inner voice saying, walk this way. An ever-present guide indicating what is right to do, to think, to say. Not a compelling force that controls us like a puppeteer, but the still small voice that requires us to be still, to listen, to respond. Not to replace God's word but to come alongside of each of us and enable us to live it out in our own unique situations. God in us makes possible what we could never do on our own, true worship. In verse 23, Jesus says that the time prophesied by Ezekiel has now arrived. God has always desired worshippers like this, and now that Jesus has come, so now the Spirit is given too. God's Spirit living within us is true of everyone who belongs to Christ. The Spirit is not a gift just for some, the the spiritual elite, those who have had a special experience. His indwelling is essential if any of us are to worship God as He requires. Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9 put it this way you have you however are not controlled are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the spirit if the spirit of god lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of christ he does not belong to christ this means that if the holy spirit doesn't live within you then you are not a christian and if you are not a christian then your worship is perpetually misdirected yes you do worship but it is always worship of the wrong thing. Worship must be jesus focus, enabled by the indwelling spirit, or else it is false worship. This is an unashamedly exclusive claim. And so, as I sat in a little town in the middle of Thailand, discussing with a Thai friend the, the differences between Christianity and Buddhism, we ended up discussing the idea of, of doing good deeds. We had had many previous conversations and he understood that Christianity is all about how Jesus had died in our place, a a concept foreign or at least on the margins of Buddhism. But Buddhism and Christianity both encourage its followers to do good deeds. And so my friend Wun Song saw a point of similarity, but for him also a very disturbing difference. The debate for him boiled down to if, if I helped a little old lady across the road, it would please God. But if he did, it counted for nothing. Exact same action, exact same benefit for the recipient of the help. But because I was a follower of Jesus, it somehow pleased God, while his actions in God's eyes were as dirty rags. It sounds so unfair. How, how can it be this way? And yet I think my friend Bun Song was right. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 clearly asserts that God has prepared good works for us to do. But while Bun Song thought that good deeds are intrinsically good, the Bible says that they're only good if they're done with the right motivation. They must flow from the salvation that Jesus achieved, never attempt to earn it or pay it back. What we do is important. We can only worship if we worship in the spirit and in truth. There are facts and actions that we must get right if our worship is to be acceptable. Doing things with only partial understanding may lead to doing things that are not right. If I take my pet sheep down to 330 Kira Street, take it up on the stage and slit its neck, neither God nor those who clean the carpet are going to be pleased. It's not worship. It's a crime. These days, Google is the go-to place for all answers. And if you've looked at Google Maps lately, you may have noticed this. But although Google thinks that WBC is temporarily closed, nothing could be further from the truth. The building may be closed, but the people are still exactly where God wants us to be. Because we don't need a special place to worship. God has given us each a unique life with which to worship him. We have the incredible privilege of knowing of Jesus' substitutionary death in our place, and and so we know the one who is central to all acceptable worship. And if we have trusted in Jesus, his spirit lives in us so that we are enabled to worship, not just for an hour on Sunday, but as we submit each and every area of our lives to him. From the outside, other religions may seem more devoted. Their places of worship may look more spectacular. The sacrifices they make may appear more costly. But external things like those don't impress God. He has revealed that our all-of-life response must be centered on Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those are the worshippers that He desires. May we be found to be among them. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you so much for the privilege that you've revealed to us the truth that we need to hear, that though we are by nature worshippers, our worship is always going in the wrong place, directed to the wrong one, unless you correct it. We thank you so much that you've revealed to us, Jesus, the substitute who died in our place, who enables us to recognise Uh, what has been done in our place that allows us to be able to be ones who truly worship you. Thank you that we live in a time when you have given us your spirit to dwell within us, to guide us as we seek to live out your word in our day to day. We pray uh, that we would increasingly respond with obedience to your voice, uh, that we would respond by worshipping truly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.